one of the greatest presidents, but he's also known for his failures. His mother died when he was very young. His first business failed. He tried to run for state legislature, and he lost. He got fired from his next job. He wanted to go to law school, but he couldn't get in. And then he borrowed some money from his friends, and at the end of that year, declared bankruptcy. Um, around 1834, though, he ran again for state legislature, and this time he won. And a year later, he got engaged, he was in love, about to be married. Sounds like things were going well, but no. His streak of good fortune ended, and um, his sweetheart died. And he had a total nervous breakdown, and he was actually bedridden for six months. After that, he tried entering politics again, and he faced defeat for a number of times. Still, it didn't make him lose hope, or at least determination. And in 1860, he was elected president of the United States. Never give up. Keep going, no matter what. Sometimes it's easier said than done, isn't it? But perseverance really can make a difference between failure and success. When my son Adam enrolled in the Ph.D. program at University of Maryland, his aunt, who also has a Ph.D., told him something that he never forgot. She said, whether you make it and earn that degree is not dependent on how smart you are. What it depends on is you're sticking with it until the end. And that's kind of true on a spiritual level, isn't it? Um, we, we keep our head down, keep moving forward. Don't let circumstances determine how much that we trust God. Perseverance, the ability to trust God at all times, that's what wins the race. But the problem is that there's sometimes circumstances that will become a huge challenge to us. There'll be times when some tragedy or great disappointment causes us to question God and even could make us walk away. My mom's illness was one of those things for me. She had leukemia. It took about two years, but it finally took her. Uh, terrible tragedy for me. So were the circumstances of my grandson Joseph's um, birth and first years of life. You're all familiar with that, and you've been praying for him. I was so stricken during those times that I couldn't even pray. And while I was pretty sure God existed, I was a little rocky on that at the time, but I had to wonder about his goodness and his good intentions toward me. So we're going to read a story today about 12 men who faced that kind of challenge. It's actually 11 men and Jesus. <laughs> um, they were on the cusp of a horrible tragedy, injustice, suffering, and grief. And what we're going to find as we dig into what happened with them, this story will help us to know how to prepare for the worst and how to guard and trust our faith in God when the worst happens. So we're going to continue in the series this morning, The Big Reveal on the Gospel of Mark. Now, last week, Bill walked us through the Last Supper uh, with his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and they finished the meal with a hymn, and then they left the table, and they were on their way to Gethsemane when we left them behind. Well, this, morning, this week, they're arriving at Gethsemane. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 32. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. 
they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's ask God to help us with this passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty of what Jesus did for us, for the way that he sacrificed himself um, for, for all of us, taking all of our sin and nailing it to the cross with him. And uh, we just ask, Lord, that we would be able to maybe get a little new, fresh understanding about this very familiar passage and that you would just please help us to um, understand exactly what uh, message you're trying to convey with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot to unpack here um, before we can find out what Mark was trying to convey with exactly what he uh, wrote. You know, he carefully chose each detail to drive home a message. When you look at all the Gospels, especially the three uh, synoptic Gospels, which meant they were you know, written about the same time, about the same body of material, um, they uh, added other details. I didn't look at those when I was studying because I want to know what Mark was doing. I want to know what Mark had to say and where he was going with exactly what he included. So um, that's what we're going to be looking at. So we're going to dive in and figure out what Mark wants us to know. Well, the passage begins with a warning from Jesus. He quotes Zechariah 13.7 to his disciples. And if, you're, if you notice, if you have an NASB Bible, all of the, the words are written down in capital letters. Do you see it? That means it's a quote from the Old Testament. So whenever you see that, you know that it's from somewhere else. So it was actually Zechariah. And so uh, I thought I looked into a little bit about what the circumstances were for Zechariah's quote to see maybe what it meant for them and then how Jesus used it. So the first thing I found out that Zechariah was a prophet and that he wrote about 70 years after the fall of Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. He traveled back from exile. If you remember, King Cyrus let the people back. There were 50,000 Jews that came to inhabit the Jews Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The foundation had been poured and finished. There had been altars put up, but then due to outside influences and discouragement, all the work came to a halt, and it stayed halted for 16 years. So God gave the words of prophecy, first to Haggai and then Zechariah, to encourage them to go back to that project that they had started 16 years ago. He encouraged spiritual renewal by revealing them God's plans for the future. Something to hope for is what he was doing. Um, <clears throat> the later part of the book, which is where chapter 13 is, um, 
is about the second coming, actually. So it's really in the future. It's even in our future. And how, how Jesus would come back, the Messiah would come back, and, um, and his kingdom and what that would look like in Israel. So that's kind of the, the context in which this quote happened. Now, chapter 13 particularly, there's a couple of verses that he gives that might help us even understand the quote a little bit more. He says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against my man, my associate. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Now, quite often when a prophecy is given, and I'm, I'm writing something on um, <clears throat> all the scriptures from the Messiah, and I'm finding that every passage, every um, prophecy that I'm writing about has a near fulfillment and then a much later fulfillment, which is kind of the big fulfillment. And it happens over and over again in prophecy, and I think that was what was happening here. At least that's how Jesus saw it, because Jesus took those verses and he used them to talk about him in that here and now, in that first century. We know, of course, that later it's going to happen in the second coming because of all the context around it. But I think that um, he, he was going to be the near fulfillment because he is the shepherd. And the plan was, when he left heaven and came to earth, the plan was that, the, that he would be struck down, striking the shepherd, and that would open up the fountain of God's grace and forgiveness for Israel's uh, sin and impurity. But... When the shepherd was struck, the sheep will scatter. So he tells them, all of you will fall away. Well, I started wondering about fall away. What does that mean? So I did some research into the Greek. And the Greek word he used was scandalizio. Scandalizio, scandalizio is a word that we get the word scandalized or scandal from. So you can kind of get that idea. It's make somebody stumble or fall. Um, Jesus used it in a very passive sense, which is very important in the Greek. So they were not going to willfully stumble and fall, but circumstances were going to act on them that would cause them to do that. It's an offense, an offense so great it will make them stumble. Now, the disciples had been offended before. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, whenever Jesus brought up any time that he was going to be suffer and, he was suffering and die, they would be offended. The first time happened in chapter 832 in Mark. Um, he told them the plan. And basically, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. No, Lord, that shall never happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because that was the plan. That's why he came to do it. The second time, he revealed it to them. They were going through Galilee, and he told them again about his coming death. And this is their response this time. They did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. And then, with their next breath, they proceeded to argue about who was going to be the greatest and who was going to be the least. So they didn't get it at all. And then finally, in 1032, after Jesus tells them in detail what's going to happen, James and John made this request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Face palm, right? A place on the right and a place on the left of Jesus when he rules. He just said what was going to happen, and it didn't even register with them. Went on one ear and out the other. The disciples wouldn't believe Jesus. They didn't want to hear it. In every case, what did they respond with? They respond with self-assertion and conceit. 
The thought of Jesus suffering and dying was so offensive, they wouldn't even acknowledge that he had said it. Because if he was killed, of course, everything that they were planning on, counting on, was lost, and they would have to abandon ship. So his suffering and death would definitely be a stumbling block to them. Now, this night, Jesus warns them what's going to happen next. You will all fall away. But the disciples continue in that denial. Peter says, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. But Jesus assures him, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Three times is, again, not a momentary slip. You did it again and again, three times. And uh, the other disciples actually echoed Peter's claim. Now, to have confidence sometimes can be misplaced. When I was, um, actually, I just graduated from college, and I was getting ready to come down to Calvert County to teach my first year of teaching. And my, the car that my dad had bought for me when I was a senior um, needed to be re-registered. He wanted it to be in my name, I guess in case I got in an accident, he wouldn't get in trouble. But anyway, I had to go to DMV. But the problem was that earlier, the week before, I was up at Camperia, and I had dislocated my kneecap. So I was in a cast from the top bottom of my hip all the way down to my ankle. Big, huge, heavy cast, and it's crutches, and I was just learning how to get around. Well, the DMV at that time, because no handicapped things were really a big deal, did not have an elevator. They only had stairs, and so I had to walk up from the parking lot two flights to get up to the place where I could register my car. So I did that. It was a job, but I did it. And I got up to the front desk, and you know how um, uh, motor vehicle people are. Not the most pleasant to deal with. And this one lady was looking at my thing, and she said, oh, no, you've got the wrong license plate number. I said, no, I don't. I just copied it from my car before I got up here. Well, it says here that this belongs to some man in Glastonbury. I said, you people have made a mistake. I said, and the reason I know this is my father bought the car from Glastonbury from a man. So it probably never got transferred, even though my dad did do the paperwork for it. You people need to fix your fault. Well... I was very confident about this, as I was about everything when I was that age. And so I, I told them, no, I'm so, she said, well, you need to go down and check your car. I said, I can't go down two flights of stairs and come back up again. I just can't. So they called the manager over. Heavy set man, he comes walking over. What's the problem? And they said, she won't go down to her car. To, and I said, I can't. And they said that to check her license plate. And they told him the whole story. See, he said, all right, I'll go down and check. He was not happy, but he went down, was gone for about 15 minutes. I guess he finally found my car, got the license plate, came back upstairs, slammed it down on the counter and said, you were wrong. I couldn't believe it. I was wrong? When did that happen? Oh, never. Kind of embarrassing. But when I got home and I told my dad, he was on the floor laughing because he knew all about my big self-confidence. <laughs> and how many times I could be mistaken. I guess he thought it might be a good lesson for me. You know, sometimes our confidence can be misplaced. The disciples, as you saw, were not short on confidence, but Jesus had told them what was about to happen, and they don't believe him. Not a good start. Then their denial of that whole thing was a wall between them. They don't get him or his purpose for even being there. Now, I imagine after having that kind of a, a interaction with the disciples, that was very isolating for Jesus. Nobody got him. That can be a very lonely place. Well, Jesus then, when they get to Gethsemane, 
goes on alone to speak with the Father. Now, Gethsemane was an olive grove with an olive press that they would press the oil out of at the foot of Mount Olives. Now, he leaves most of the disciples at that point, and he tells them, wait here while he prays. But he takes three of the disciples, inner circle. He's taken them to uh, places before by themselves, Peter, James, and John. He takes them a little bit further from the group. Now, the gravity at this point of what's about to happen overwhelms Jesus. The words Mark used to describe this are very, very strong words. As a matter of fact, they're never, rarely used in the Old Testament, and only by Mark. He only uses these words. He's first distressed, and that word carries the sense of alarm, this terrible dread or fear of what's coming. And it says he is troubled, which is, again, great distress or anguish. So you get that strong thing. And, and Mark even tells us he was so deeply grieved to the point of death. Sorrow is so deep. It feels like he's going to die. He's dying right there. Now, Jesus is completely isolated from human support. So he collapses on the ground and he cries out those beautiful two words, Abba, Father. Now, that word Abba was not used by Jews in prayer it would have been considered disrespectful. So it actually expressed unprecedented intimacy with God. It's a term of boldness, approaching God. It's of trust and affection, like you would approach your dad. And Jesus was throwing himself into the arms of the one who loved him best, who did understand him, who did support his mission and his purpose. And then he further states his trust in his father by saying, all things are possible for you. But then he has a request. Remove this cup from me. Now this request is so important that Mark states it two times in two parallel phrases. The first one, he says, he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And the second time he says, the next verse, Jesus says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. See how they parallel there? Whenever you see something that's repeated a number of times, go for it. Because that means that the the author is putting big emphasis on that thing. And so here he is putting emphasis on that phrase. Um, So what he's praying right there is important. And the truth is, this moment... When, God, when Jesus prays that prayer, is not only pivotal to our understanding, but it's pivotal to our understanding of the gospel. The cup, the hour, they both refer to the same thing. Now, when the metaphor of a cup is used in the Old Testament, it most often represents the judgment of God. Um, all of what he was about to endure was much worse than just physical torture. That wasn't bad enough. The Psalms in Isaiah refer to the cup of God's judgment as a cup of staggering, you can see in Psalm 60, and then a cup that would make someone real. That judgment was a big thing. And the agony that Mark's showing here, it's very graphically different than other people who have died for their faith. Think about all those stoic martyrs that we've read about. Um, And many prophets who delivered God's message were also killed for their faith. But look what... what, um, Hebrews has to say about that. Others were tortured, experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, and all these having gained approval through their faith. It doesn't talk about anybody going into a garden and throwing themselves on the ground and say, take this cup from me. Seems like they're a whole lot more stoic. Another example we can look for is in Stephen, when he's about to be stoned in the book of Acts. Uh, I don't know if he knows he's about to be stoned, but he's in front of the council, and he's giving them the gospel, fearlessly, standing out, doing what he's supposed to do, and as he's witnessing, they take up tones and drag him outside the city, and they're going to stone him to death. And this is what it says about Stephen. It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. No anguish there. Uh, no, no trouble, no terrible. So why is Mark giving us so much detail about Jesus' struggle? Wouldn't you think that would kind of make Jesus look bad? Well, I think he's communicating something to us. I think he's communicating that this was not going to be an ordinary death. This was not going to be a martyr. Jesus is facing something much greater. He's facing something cosmic that's going to change the world, something no one in the history of the world would ever experience, had or never would. He would become the bearer of the sins of the world. Now think about that. That profound experience, the significance of the cross, did not escape Jesus. And as he looked ahead to the next few hours, he was deep, deep distress, because he was going to bear the judgment for every sin that was ever committed or be committed. Now, just think, when you have to go apologize to somebody for one of your sins, that's painful a little bit, especially if they don't accept your apology. I'm not going to forgive you. That's what Jesus had to do for all of my sins, all of the sins of everybody in this room, the sins from the world, from creation, until um, he comes again. It was not an expression of fear or shrinking from physical death and suffering. What we're seeing here, I believe, is the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father and he's suffering at the prospect of alienation from him. But then there's this pivotal moment. Jesus, bowed under the weight of what was about to come, submits his will to the Father. He says, not what I will, but what you will. He makes the choice to stay aligned with God's purposes. You know, one of my commentaries had an interesting idea about that pivotal moment. This is what he said. The relinquishment of Jesus' body on Golgotha depends on prior surrender of his will to the Father. That surrender takes place not on the hill outside Jerusalem, but in a valley beneath it. According to Mark, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion on Golgotha. And we can see that, can't we? The cross is a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the hand, a matter of the will before it's an empirical reality. That agony and that decision made completely turning it over to the Father difficult. In fact, he had to do it three times. And um, because Mark says that he was praying pretty much the same thing. So finally, that decision was made. And then, from then on, you don't see Jesus collapsed on the ground. You don't see Jesus 
sobbing for his, you know, his life, anything like that. He resolutely moves forward. He, his demeanor becomes absolutely calm. Anything that happens to him doesn't seem to faze him as he moves towards his arrest and trial. That moment was the divisive thing for him, decided thing for him. But the disciples, they were having another kind of moment. Before going off to pray alone, Jesus had urged Peter, James, and John, stay alert and pray. He said, keep watching and praying. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. Well, what were they watching for? I used to think they were watching for Judas and the soldiers to be coming, and they were kind of the lookouts. But then Jesus tells them, oh, they're coming. Let's go. He knew. He knew when they were coming. So I don't think he was asking them to watch for that. And the other thing he tells them is that they wouldn't, he doesn't want them to fall into temptation. Well, what was the temptation? To deny him? To scatter? Well, no, because I believe that Jesus had already lined that out for them, that that was going to happen. And you know what? Jesus is never wrong. <laughs> he knew it was going to happen. So obviously he's not telling them, try to, try to skip that. So then what is he saying here? And uh, so I think that what was happening at the crucifixion, Jesus was going to be unjustly accused. He was going to be convicted of something that he never did. They accused him of insurrection. And that's why the Romans had him crucified. He would die a shameful death at the hands of the Galilee, at, at, of the Gentiles, excuse me. And he would be buried in a tomb. So their relationship with him and all the hopes that they had and the dreams they had for his kingdom would be popped like an inflated balloon. And that grief and disappointment would present a temptation to walk away, being disillusioned with him and uh, disillusioned with the Father. So Jesus, I don't think, was merely warning them about the experience they were about to have. I think he was warning them that they stood in danger of succumbing, succumbing to that experience or to fail the test. And that would underline, undermine the trust and commitment that Jesus had been trying to get from them for three years. Prayer was their best weapon. They were about to enter a spiritual battle, and you know who was behind it, right? Satan was going to sift them like wheat. Jesus had told them that. What was the battle? They were to keep from falling prey to that testing from Satan that they were about to face. So, what? What's our takeaway from Mark's account? Well, there's a couple of things that I found that really kind of helped me to hone, hone in and focus on where we're supposed to go with this message. First, I noticed, and I'm not usually a numbers girl, but Mark uses a lot of threes here. Threes. So he, he, this is the third time that he records that Jesus prayed. Um, at the beginning of his book, he wrote, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. That was in 135. Then, just after feeding the 5,000, in chapter 6, it says, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. This is the third time that Jesus prays. And there is one other time that he, he calls out to God on the cross. But he doesn't call it prayer. He just calls it a shout-out. So this is the third, the one that we're looking at right now. It's the prayer of relinquishment at Gethsemane. All three of them had a similar setting. They were done at night, in the dark, and alone, in solitude. Another three. The only three were told to watch and pray. 
and only the three were the ones that slept. Three times Jesus goes off to pray, and seemingly uh, the same prayer in that olive grove. Three times he returns to find the disciples sleeping. And of course, Peter was told he would deny the Lord three times. That's a lot of threes, right? Well, I think what's happening here, it's what the threes do is they serve to highlight the importance of each of those facts. They want those to stand out from the page from us. Um, together, they highlight the importance of prayer and preparation for that kind of temptation. Second thing I notice is that Jesus set side by side Jesus' response to what was laid ahead and the disciples, the three's response to what was laid ahead. So when you have something side by side, always, always compare and make a chart. <laughs> because I like charts. But anyway, so I think this comparison, at the beginning, they had this glib confidence the disciples do in their determination and strength to keep from falling away. I will never do that, they say. But Jesus fell to the ground in complete dependence on the Father. The disciples reacted strongly against the necessity for suffering, and they clung to their own agenda of being the first and being a rule with Jesus. But Jesus submitted his will to the Father's. And finally, the disciples slept through an opportunity to pray from help, for help from God. But Jesus prayed fervently to his Abba Father and laid out his struggle with honesty. So who do you think had the best game plan? I think it's very important that we learn a lesson from this little thing and know that, you know, the disciples might have been good men, but we don't follow men. We follow Jesus. And what Jesus was doing is the way that we need to go. Spiritual awareness, wakefulness, and prayer, acknowledging a full dependence on the Lord, provide the only adequate uh, preparation for a crisis. Jesus, the Son of God, prepared for his own intense trial through what? Vigilance and prayer. And thus gave the disciples and the church a model for the proper resistance in temptation. As a matter of fact, Mark was writing to people in his book, his gospel, in Rome who were about to go through immense persecution. And I think this would be a great lesson for them as they're headed for that. Watch and pray. It points to both human responsibility and to God's responsibility. Awareness, watchfulness can keep us ready, keep us falling prey to temptation. And prayer enlists the power of God and the help of God to do it. Um, I published a devotional yesterday on our um, Arise Daily website, and it was, a girl was talking about she was watching seagulls, and the seagulls all seemed to be facing in the same direction. They'd come down in a flock on the beach, and, they would, and she, she couldn't figure out why. Where were, well, how were they facing? Because sometimes it would differ from place to place. And she finally figured it out. The seagulls always faced into the wind. And the reason they did that is if trouble were to come, a threat was to happen, they could pick up and fly with their, their tail feathers, would not drag because of the wind coming in. This was just their position that they needed to be in to make a quick getaway. So they were always watching, always ready. And I thought that was a great uh, illustration of what Jesus is saying about here. Well, how, we, how do we get aware and how do we um, get ready for something that might happen down the road? And believe me, every one of us is going to have things that is going to make us pause in our faith at one time or another. 
Well, this is what I want to tell you. The time for deepening your relationship with God is now. Don't wait for that crisis to hit. Know him as Abba Father with all the warmth and the love and the security that will uh, be between you. And when we know the Father intimately, we know we can trust him. And when that crisis comes, we can call out, Abba Father. You know, uh, just to end, we, uh, Steve and I were watching a series on World War II heroes. It's on Netflix. It's pretty good. We enjoyed it. It's all these old veterans who were recalling um, getting into, the, actually was landing into France and then working their way toward Berlin. It's a series. But anyway, one of the things that struck me was um, they, they all talked about training, how important the training was. And they ran drills over and over again so they could do it in their sleep. Why? Because when they invaded in France on D-Day, there were going to be guns shooting at them. There were going to be bombs going off. There were going to be planes from above coming in and trying to, to get them out. Everything would be a total chaos. So this was not going to be a time to make a plan. They're going to hardly be able to think straight, right? The plan was before and do it so many times that that drill would become a default and then that they would be able to, to carry on even in the midst of that terrible crisis, whatever's happening all around them. Prayer is like that. When we spend time with God frequently, it becomes our default reaction. We know the source of help well, and it's only natural then for us to turn to it. So learning to submit to his plan and his leading, learning that on a daily basis will then prepare us when the big crisis comes to remain aligned with him when trouble hits. So my final words to you are this. Don't do what the disciples did. Learn from the example of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're always present and available to help us in our time of need. And we do acknowledge that whether we're conscious of it or not at the moment, that we are completely dependent on your grace and on your strength. Help us, Lord, to continue in developing our knowledge of you and developing a habit of consistent communication with you so that when those times of trouble come, that we will automatically, our default will be to call on your name for the help that we need to get through it. Thank you, Lord, we're not alone. Thank you for the example Jesus gave us. And I pray for each person in this room, Lord, that you would take these words and help them to transform their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.